So the reading's found on the little orange sheet, so please follow along. Um, The first reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 to 31. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts on the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there, were, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And the second reading is from Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one. And there is no no one, there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had given that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. small people uh, and so uh, it's nice to be back with you and also to get the opportunity to play the guitar as well uh, but I'm here to talk to you uh, about a subject that's very dear to my heart um, and, and I think before I go on I, I must say that uh, I don't feel necessarily equipped for this in the sense that I, I haven't studied theology I'm not a regular preacher the qualification that I have for this is that I have spent the last 15 years wrestling with the topic of what does it mean to be a Christian and to be in full-time secular employment. Uh, You see, I work at Shell. Uh, I'm a general manager in the oil and gas industry, moving towards the energy industry. Um, And I run a team of about 160 people who work on data science and artificial intelligence. Um, And and I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is as I share what I do with Christians, what I often get is this rather strange reaction. And and, um, I sort of relate it to the traditional hierarchy of Christian jobs. And if you can flip to the next slide for me, 
uh, you'll, you'll get the idea. So effectively, we have this beautiful sacred secular divide here that cuts off right uh, below worship leader uh, and, and, and starts with school worker and then goes down to oil and gas manager or perhaps investment banker uh, who are narrowly escaping the flames of hell. Um, of course, I'm joking. Um, but in this alternative Christian universe, um, and I think this is something which is also relevant for those who are not in paid employment, by the way, because they also feel often that they hit the very bottom tier of the working world, because we in London in particular put so much value Uh, into what we do every day. And so uh, in Christian conversations and also in non-Christian conversations, the first question so often is, what is it that you do? Um, And I think the thing that I've struggled with is reconciling something that I feel very called to, which is what I do most of the time, with also that reaction that so often you encounter where people feel that this is somehow not an appropriate Christian profession. And so this has become a personal struggle for me, and I think for many people, where we try to reconcile those two things, the sense that what we do is somehow separate from church, but yet this deep sense, which I believe is from the Holy Spirit, that actually we're in the right place. So what I'm going to try to do for you tonight is try and walk you through some of the way in which I've tried to reconcile that. So I'm going to start off talking about some failings that I think the church has had, uh, perhaps things that are half-truths that have been taken out of context and then have evolved into things that influence the way we think. And then I'm going to try and show what I think Jesus wants for us to experience in our workplace every day. So as I started to study this area, I started to look into church history, and I think the first area that I looked at is the early church. If you just go to the next slide for me. This is uh, Simeon Stylites. How many people have heard of Simeon? A couple? Okay, good. Simeon was renowned because he was perhaps the most extreme of the ascetics. He lived for 37 years on top of a small platform near Aleppo. And he was passionate. He fasted. He Uh, subjected himself to extreme bodily austerity. And as he did so, people would come along and stand around his pole, and every day he would come out and preach to them and then go back to his extreme asceticism. And I think, obviously, this is a a very extreme case, uh, clearly not sensible to live up a pole for 37 years. But, But I think what is interesting is that it does perhaps personify one of the attitudes which the church has had, which was that the, if you like, the main event was what we did with God, and, and we needed to separate ourselves as much as possible from the world to avoid being contaminated. If you like, we retreat into our holy huddle and only go out to preach to people. Now, this is clearly not what Christ intended. But there's also another extreme. If you go to the next slide, uh, this is a guy by the name of Max Weber. He's a German sociologist. And he wrote a very famous essay entitled Protestant Asceticism and the Spirit of Capitalism. If you like, this is the updating of Simeon Stylites, but going in a very different direction. 
And the essay basically argues that much of our modern capitalist society can be found in the Protestant church of the 18th century. And the argument runs a little bit like this. It says, effectively, labor is a divinely commanded ultimate end to to life as a whole. In other words, what we work on is good. And as a Protestant, it was important to focus on work and not on contemplation. And also, they felt that the wish to be poor was analogous to the wish to be ill, and instead, you should make good use of what God has given you. And this is perhaps best summed up in the words of Wesley, uh, who gave a famous uh, sermon on the use of money. And he says, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Now again, there's nothing wrong with this, just like there's nothing wrong with fasting or taking some time apart. But taken out of context, what this says is that actually the only purpose in work is to earn money to give to Christian ministry. And I think that also can't be true. So moving to my third example, again, our evangelical church is is very rooted in these 18th century traditions. And at that time, we had great missionary leaders like James Hudson Taylor And they very much built out the modern concept of tent making. In other words, working for your living in the context of evangelism. And Hudson Taylor trained as a doctor. He treated hundreds of Chinese men and women. And he embedded himself into the culture of the local population, speaking their language, learning their customs. And he did that in order to share the gospel with them. And this has become very much the standard Uh, of modern missionary organizations. But I think the challenge here, and again, there's nothing wrong with this. It's a fantastic way of doing mission and arguably the way that's been done for centuries by the church. But at the end of the day, it's also at times been picked up by the evangelical church and translated into the only purpose that you have in the workplace is to actually evangelize the people sitting next to you. Now, all of this jars with me, and it jars with me because I find I found it very unsatisfying. Because we can't consider our secular work to be just contaminated time and the main act being what we do with, with other Christians. As to what that leads to is an inevitably shallow engagement with the world. We also can't see our work as purely a way of generating financial income to support other worthwhile activities. Because we spend so much of our time doing it that, once again, that's deeply unsatisfying. And we can't simply be in the workplace to evangelize. Because at the end of the day, again, the amount of time and opportunities that we get in the workplace to have those conversations is probably very small. And I think... Behind all of this, the thing I struggle with the most about these explanations is they draw this really clear delineation. You remember my line uh, between Christian workers and non-Christian workers? It's that delineation between sacred and profane. And I believe that this distinction is false. I've come to believe that this distinction is false. And I've also come to believe that actually work is a profoundly important part of our Christian walk. And I want to unpack that a little bit 
as we go through the remainder of our time together. So turn with me, if you will, back to what you heard in Genesis 1. And it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. And then it goes on and it says, Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The interesting point that I want to dwell on here is that term, rule. God explicitly grants dominion and authority and control, if you like, over the things that he's created to man. In other words, God has ordained that we are going to be never ceasing spiritual beings made in his own image. We've been made to have dominion or to rule over our kingdom. Or to put it differently, the range of our effective will. Our whole personhood is bound up in our ability and will to act as an autonomous entity. It gives us the ability to love, to act kindly, to care for, to support others, and also it provides our ability to sin. But if we return to God's covenant in Genesis 1, it's implicit that the dominion that God grants over his creation is meant to be exercised through relationship with him. And of course, the personification of this union is Jesus Christ. And it's little wonder then that Jesus spends so much of his time talking explicitly about the concept of the kingdom of God. And it seems to me that Christ's mission was not only to die on the cross, but also to reconcile humanity to himself through the radical transformation of Christian lives by conforming our lives to his in deep relationship. And I think it's that which is so important in the concept of the kingdom of God. And this puts paid once and for all to that divide that I talked about between the sacred and the profane. Because in this context, the work that we do every day becomes redeemed. It becomes holy. And I love this thought because it creates meaning in that 90%. It says that the things that you do every day are extremely valuable to God beyond the things that are traditionally Christian, that they matter. So what does this look like? Turn with me, if you will, to the second passage, to Mark 12. And and I think, again, this is a very appropriate passage for this evening because in this context, what's happening is Jesus is receiving an absolute grilling, uh, something that many of us experience in the workplace on a regular basis, from Sadducees. And he's just answered a series of very tough questions very eloquently. And then this scribe pipes up and he says, which commandment is the greatest of all? And it seems that his question is genuine. He really wants to know what is at the heart of the Torah and what's the key to living. And Jesus' response then is something that we should take heed of. And he says this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
Now, I said I'm no theologian, but I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things I found out about this passage. The first is that the, these words, the first word, the first set of, the first commandment um, is called the Shema. At least that's what the Jewish refer to it, Jews refer to it as. And it means to hear or listen and obey. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. And it's regularly recited in worship and daily prayers. And what it's really saying is it's a call, a command to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. In other words, with all of our collective being. And the word for love here is agape. Agape love is more of a doing love than a feeling love, although it involves both. And agape requires action. It requires us to demonstrate our love in some practical fashion. And then it goes on to the the commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself. and, And that's from Leviticus 19 verse 18. But I think the point of bringing these two commandments together is that there's a call to balance these two great commandments. In other words, the person who loves God but doesn't love his neighbor is gravely deficient. But the love for neighbor quickly denigrates into humanism or sentimentalism unless it's grounded in the love of God. The love of God is the first commandment and not the second because the love of God is the foundation upon which the other commandments depend. And the scribe sees what Jesus is getting at and he says, Truly, teacher, you have said well that he is one. And so again, he he seems to be affirming Jesus in this. And Jesus sees his heart and he responds, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And it's clear here that what Jesus is talking about is that the kingdom of God is the outworking of those two commandments. And in understanding this, the scribe has moved a step closer to that kingdom. And then it's very easy to skip over the end of the passage, but I think it's crucially important. Because the passage ends by saying, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. To me, it's really clear that what's happening here is that the teachers, the teachers of the law in the synagogue and the scribes and others were so impressed or rather terrified by what Jesus was saying that they no longer wanted to question him. And I think this is really key because what it's showing us is that Jesus was God made man. He brought the fullness of God to earth. And what that means is that he was and he is the most intelligent man who ever lived. I'll say that again because it's important. He was and he is the most intelligent man who ever lived. And I think if you asked a number of Christians, maybe a hundred Christians, who was the most intelligent man who ever lived, I'd be surprised if a lot of them said Jesus because I'd never thought of it that way before. And I think it's that lack of understanding of Jesus' ability to guide our lives as the great teacher, as the source of all knowledge, that is actually crucial to understanding work. Because what that means 
is that Jesus is the greatest authority on what you do every day. He's the master of molecules. He's the inventor of the laws of physics. He invented genetic code. And until we surrender our arrogance or our compartmentalism and become willing to learn from Christ in any context, we'll struggle to be real disciples or pupils of the world's greatest teacher. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, part of his kingdom coming on earth is actually conforming our will to his and being open to learn from him. So how does this relate to our work, meaning the outworking of the range of our effective will and bringing that into conformance of the teachings of the teacher? And I think it means we need to start changing our view of Jesus, not only as saviour, not only as helper, but as lord and teacher in the truest sense of the word. And as we begin to learn from the most intelligent man who ever lived and conforming our work to our will to his, what this means for our work as the place in which we spend most of our time becomes the most significant sacred event as we learn to honor Christ in that context and we learn to conform our actions to his in that context. And throughout scripture, we see examples of this, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It seems that God calls people from a whole range of secular professions. Abraham was a wealthy cattle trader. Daniel was a senior civil servant. Joseph was a prime minister. Luke was a doctor. The first Ethiopian convert was a central banker. Paul was a tent maker. Jesus was a carpenter. Dorcas was in fashion. Lydia was a businesswoman. Cornelius was an army general. Simon was a tanner. And of course, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. But Jesus doesn't call people out of these professions, not even Zacchaeus, if you notice, even though what he was doing was morally corrupt. Instead, his entire focus seems to be on transforming people into the image of Christ where they are. You see, the spread of the gospel is all around transforming ordinary human lives into the conformance of the will of Christ so that they can bring his kingdom every single day. And what that means is the gospel is not superficial. It's holistic. Your discipleship is holistic. What you do every day matters, and it matters deeply to Christ. Let me show you some really deeply unfashionable scriptures that I haven't heard preached on too often. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you won't be dependent on anybody. Nevertheless, each of you should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to you, This is the rule that I lay down for the churches. Each one should remain in the station which he was in when God called him. And I think it's that sense of remain and be faithful that's really important. It totally transforms 
what you do. Because rather than calling people out of where they are, Jesus calls them to stay mostly and asks them to be faithful and to be his agent of change in that context. The power of the kingdom of God is that it operates in the context where the individual Christian was placed. So what does that look like? How do we make that real? It's kind of ironic that I'm at the end of one of the toughest weeks of my working life. Um, A whole series of things, a whole series of storms hit my desk this week. And sometimes I think God has a sense of humor because he gave me plenty of material for the sermon. And I think as these storms hit my desk, one of the things that I was trying to figure out this week was, what would Jesus do in this context? How would he answer these questions with wisdom? How would he respond? How would he care for these people? So I'm going to give a few practical examples. Earlier this month, my line manager took the decision, the difficult decision, to consolidate two offices in India. About 30 people will have to move locations. About 10 of them are in my team. And some of them won't report to me after the move. They need to move their families in most cases because they need to change to the other side of the city. So the question is, in that context, what would Jesus do? How would he deal with these people who are being asked to uproot their whole lives and go to a new location? How would he encourage them? How would he support them? A second example. I'm dealing with a breach of an ethical code. I'm clearly going to have to manage some consequences for the person involved. And as I'm thinking this through, I'm trying to figure out how would Jesus deal with the situation? How would he be Christ to this person? How would he love this person whilst at the same time staying true to the standards and the ethical values that we uphold as an organization when there clearly has to be consequences? I'm also part of the team responding to COVID-19 and I felt given the talk so far, it was inappropriate not to talk about that. It's extremely difficult. Tomorrow I'm going to have to send out uh, an email telling everybody in my team or the majority of them they need to work from home. And I'm facing a situation where I'm sure, given the statistics, that it's highly likely that some of my team will be infected in the coming weeks. How do I deal with that with my leaders? Some of my leaders are in the high-risk group. How do I support them? How do I make sure that I'm Christ in that situation? And then finally, I talked about the importance of of non-work. I've chosen to not work for a day a week uh, for the coming nine months to care for my eight-week-old and support my wife who's on maternity leave. And much of my Fridays now are spent dealing with a screaming baby. So what does that mean? What does it mean to conform your actions to the will of Christ in that context? How do I learn to bring him into those very short moments with her when she's tiny? So I'll conclude with this. I'm absolutely convinced that loving God and loving neighbor means that our discipleship must go far beyond the confines of where we've too often placed God. The challenge I'm working through, and I hope we'll all work through, 
is when I find myself in situations like the ones that I've just described, how do I sit at his feet? How do I learn from the teacher? And how do I figure out what does the kingdom of God look like in these contexts? Let's pray.